came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio Welcome to the new shiny Astrophys Podcasts. Once again, we're making a minor change to our format, but you'll still be getting two episodes side by side each month. We're splitting our content, so one episode each month will be dedicated to a new guest interview in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. Also, each month, you will get your regular presenter, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, in a separate episode where who will preview a sky guide for you for the coming month. And he will also take you on an astronomical journey of discovery in Ian's Tangent. We are also starting each episode with a community service announcement. First of all, wash your hands very well and often and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through the coronavirus crisis. Also, climate change is real and accelerating, and we need to keep coal in the ground and urgently transition to renewable energy sources. See what you can do to influence your local politicians to develop planet-saving policies. Our special guest for this episode is Melbourne-based RF technician, ham radio veteran and highly accomplished amateur radio astronomer, Clint Jeffrey. Hi, Clint. Hi, Brendan. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Clint Jeffrey, who is an amazing radio technician who's been collecting, connecting, testing and calibrating the RF and digital technologies in the newly constructed 8.5-metre radio telescope for the Astronomical Society of Victoria. Thanks for speaking with us, Clint. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. So before we look at your life in radio wavelengths, can you tell us how you were first drawn to science and or the skies? How did it all start for you? For me, it started as a young kid. I was always looking up at the night sky. I remember waiting for the first star to appear in the afternoon twilight or looking at Venus early in the morning thinking of that song Good Morning Starshine by Oliver. It's funny because when I saw the film The Dish, it just hit me on so many levels. Russell Morris, The Real Thing, Good Morning Starshine were all songs in that film. The film literally took me back to when I was nine years old. You know that little kid Billy in the film, playing the son of the Mayor of Parks, Roy McIntyre? I see him, and I think, that's me. I was like that at that age. Rob Stitch, the director, did a great job making that film. Just love it. 
I think my parents could see I was interested in the stars and so fueled my fascination with books like the How and Why series, which dealt with subjects on the planets and the stars, rockets and electronics. Inside were illustrations of radio waves being emitted from antennas, or one picture showed a beam of energy going off into space. I mean, what was that all about? To this day, it still intrigues me and fascinates me to imagine that you could come along, connect up your radio transmitter, plug in an aerial, and start talking to stations around the world. The fact that you could excite electrons flowing in a wire enough that they, that some of the energy is released into the atmosphere with my voice upon it. You can't see it, you can't smell it, but <laughs> that's it. This invisible radiation from a copper wire hung between trees that, that just fascinated me for such a long time and still does. Ultimately... As a birthday present, I was given a pair of 12x50 binoculars and star charts, which I used to learn how to recognise the constellations in the sky. But there were other things that tantalised my mind. I used to rush home from school, often stopping by the local fish and chip shop to buy 25 cents worth of chips wrapped up in newspaper, race home, turn on the TV, which was in those days a black and white television set using Bell technology, but I couldn't wait to watch my favourite program, Lost in Space. <laughs> Loved it. As a young kid, the concept of space travel, the stories, for one hour it would have my imagination working with wonder. Yep. The thing I was always fascinated in was the sweeping control panel with huge radar-like screen in the middle of the console with lots of useless flashing lights. I just, just loved it. And maybe, maybe that was what spurred my interest in radio and electronics. Oh, who knows? I might mention that Carl Sagan's Cosmos in 1980 rekindled my desire for astronomy and the idea of radio astronomy. I wondered about combining my interest in ham radio with astronomy. Well, I think Carl Sagan set the path for me in that one. Thanks, Carl. Yep, me too, Clint. Okay, so please tell us where you grew up and a little about your school days and your early education. I was born in Dandenong. Uh, suburb of Melbourne in 1960 and have lived in Dandenong for most of my life. All my basic education came from the public school system. I never went to any academic school, rather the teachers felt that it would be better for me to attend a technical school with hands-on subjects like woodwork and metal fabrication, learning how cars worked and technical drawing. Somewhere in there was maths and English. But I was always enjoyed the classes on science and agriculture and at some point, they introduced a class on electronics, which, of course, I did well in. Okay, cool. Uh, Clint, do you want to mention your introduction to the world of electronics and your involvement with amateur and ham radio and how that led to your professional career? Well, I would mention that in these early days for me, my interest in electronics and radio had already taken hold. By the time I was 12, my interest in things radio had already grabbed me. Building a crystal set to something a little more complicated, like an electronic metronome following some circuit diagram from a, a magazine, I think it was uh, Electronics Australia in those days, were, which were things that just interested me do, in doing. Then during school, term holidays, I was tuning around on the broadcast band radio, trying to pick up distant country radio stations, as you do, when suddenly at the far end of the tuning range, I, I heard some people talking between themselves and chatting in a group which occurred daily 
at around 11 o'clock on a frequency of 1825 kilohertz in the AM radio band. As it turned out, these radio stations were in fact ham radio or amateur radio operators using a call sign to announce themselves when on air. I was just blown away. The, the fact that I was hearing these stations scattered around Melbourne was just amazing. So one thing led to another and by the time I was 16 I had my own radio license and call sign. This acquired learning about radio theory and how antennas worked and radio propagation and even learning to receive and send Morse code as that was a requirement of your license at the time. I'm now 60 years old so 44 years later this hobby, this interest in transmitting radio waves into space and around the globe connecting and talking to other radio amateurs and there are thousands of us still out there I've got to tell you. This just kept me off the streets. The hobby is still quite alive but in these days of mobile phones and computers and the internet trying to Trying to explain the hobby, this fascination with radio waves, I mean, you know, why use a radio to talk with someone when you can phone them or text them or email them or some other modern communications platform? In fact, Brendan, because I had gained my radio license at 16, I acquired a position as a radio tradesman at NEC in 1980. At 20 years old, I had a full-time permanent job in electronics manufacturing, and for 40 years, I have never looked back. I have always managed to maintain a job in this field. Ah, that's a great start. So after your time with NEC, you continued for many years with a lot of other companies as their radio production technician, their test technician, their leading hand... And you were at Pacific Broadband Networks as their RF technician and travelled overseas. Tell us what you're doing now and has it always been so much fun? It hasn't always been fun, Brendan, I've got to tell you. Working in a manufacturing environment has its days, meeting deadlines, just-in-time policies where production was so tightly wound that there was often pressure on all of us to get product out the door on time. I was at NEC for almost 10 years in the radio production factory. Along the way, I picked up supervision skills, and for a while there, I was actually leading hand for a, a number of technicians. I then spent 11 years at Fujitsu, again, uh, an electronics manufacturer in South Dandenong, at first as a repair tech and then swapping roles to a, a leading hand position. By 2002, I started work for a small Australian company called Pacific Broadband Networks, PBN, as an RF technician. This was my way of introduction to optical fibre technology, where radio waves are modulated onto an optical light waves using laser transmitters, generally operating at around 15-50 nanometers wavelengths, outside the optical light spectrum, of course, so you can't see the light so it required specialised equipment to detect and measure the optical power. This was also the first job that allowed me to journey overseas for the first time in my life. PBN had a factory in Tianjin, and I was asked to go to China to teach the engineer how we do our testing and procedures. It was an extraordinary eye-opening experience, and to be on my own, to see another country, to just being in a commercial jet, oh, it was a amazing stuff. But it was for only 10 days. I had the chance to see the Great Wall, the Forbidden City, the Summer Palace. It was a pretty good experience. I'm now working for a, a company called SRX Global. It's a third-party electronics manufacturer doing great things for all types of customers. In fact, 
the factory used to be the old Fujitsu factory, so in a sense I've come home to a familiar place. This will probably be my last job, uh, working job actually, as I'm planning to retire soon. A great career, Clint. Now, can you tell us how and why you became involved with the Astronomical Society of Victoria and should probably also tell us, what is the Astronomical Society of Victoria? Uh, the Astronomical Society of Victoria is almost 100 years old. It was founded in 1922, currently has almost 1,300 members, catering for a wide range of interests, of course, from astrophotography to cosmology, deep sky observing and instrument making, from computer technologies to actively canvassing city councils about light pollution in cities and suburbs to something as humbling as radio astronomy. There's about 18 sections that make up uh, the ASV, in fact. Uh, the ASV is a progressive society, and its aim is certainly for the future. I came on board in 1993-94 after asking a question via the ham radio, who does amateur radio astronomy? And the answer came back the next day from a fellow radio amateur who said, oh, I'd come over for a visit and I'll introduce you to the radio astronomy section of the ASV. And I have never looked back. For 27 years, I've been attending the meetings on a monthly basis. It's been an interesting journey with active times and quiet times. But now with the acquisition of a 28-foot radio dish, well, things are looking up. <laughs> yeah, Clint. OK, so the ASV has a strong connection with optical astronomy and you've got that big dob that you roll out. And I suppose that will happen again after our current crisis. But let's focus, if you'll excuse a pun, on radio astronomy. Can you give us an introduction to your radio astronomy group at the ASV? So yes, this coronavirus has placed a hold on all activities the ASV would normally be conducting. Up at the Leon Mao Dark Sky site near Heathcote, Central Victoria, we have Victoria's biggest optical telescope, the 40-incher, and the biggest active radio telescope at 8.5 metres, 28 foot in diameter in Victoria, although I am aware of other dish antennas of the same size or larger, but are either not in use or are in the planning stages of construction. The radio astronomy section was formed in 1980. It used to meet in the lounge room of the then section director. Since then, we have had changes in director and meeting place, which is now conducted at the Society's Club Room in Burwood. When I came on board, Lockie Creswell was section director, which he fulfilled for uh, 16 years. During those years, our small group was involved with a few interesting projects, one of which was the detection of comet Shoemaker-Levy impact with Jupiter in July 1994, where we had set up three receiving stations around Victoria of a wavelength of 15 metres, about 21 megahertz. Cool. It was hoped that we could detect the impact of some of the nine fragments from the radio transmissions or emissions from the intense explosions in the Jupiter's upper atmosphere. I know that uh, Monash University had uh, a similar observatory going at the uh, Mount Burnett Observatory up in the hills. And uh, even the late uh, Doug MacArthur, VK3UM, also used his 28-foot dish, exactly the same as what we've now got, for detecting uh, the same impacts from uh, Jupiter at the time and had some success too, which was really interesting. 
We believed we had some success, though. Uh, once the data had come in, I remember very well we had rolls of chart recordings that we ran out along the meeting table. It was so exciting because NASA had supplied approximate impact times for the fragments gave us a heads up as to what part of the chart recordings, which had time reference markers to look for. At the end of the study, we believe some impacts were detected due to similar peaks in the noise floor appearing at the same time on all charts we had looked at. And uh, it was definitely an exciting time for us. But then a couple of months later uh, came news of a 4.6 metre solid aluminium dish uh, antenna that had become surplus to Tolstra's R&D research facility at uh, Caldermead near Lang Lang in Victoria. In fact, that uh, R&D research facility was being closed down, um, or had already been closed down. After a, a couple of weekends, we had successfully relocated the dish and several smaller dishes to a private property in Officer, where a support structure was designed and built. And for the next 10 years or so, monthly working bees were organised to try and use the dish for radio astronomy. But due to lack of funding and lack of know-how, the fact that it was located on private property, well, you know, one thing led to another and the project just was abandoned, which was a real blow for those who had hoped to do some interesting radio astronomy. I believe the dish is actually still standing to this day uh, in this location. This then led us on to other projects like the NASA-sponsored Radio Jove project, where one sets up a very basic antenna system, a couple of dipoles connected together in phase, to capture decametric emissions from Jupiter at 21 megahertz. At this frequency, one can detect cyclotron emission, first seen by Australian radio astronomers in the early 50s, but then further researched by the US radio astronomers who claimed the discovery. But that's another story. <clears throat> this same Jovian receiver is, uh, is a great detector for solar flares, coronal mass ejection, CME, and detecting the centre of our Milky Way some 26,000 light years away. It's really amazing stuff. But of course now was the time to be searching for another dish antenna. Well, let's talk about that, Clint. Listeners from two years ago will remember how Rob Arrowsmith introduced us to the ASV Radio Astronomy Group's dream of building that radio observatory up at your quiet zone. For new listeners, go and have a listen to Rob's great introduction in episode 37. And can you give us a potted history of the acquisition and construction of your new 28-foot, your 8.5-metre dish? Okay, no worries, Brendan. I'll try to keep this short. I became section director in 2008. One such luxury is that one often gets called to do presentations at local radio clubs or ASV meetings or some such thing. In my presentations, I would talk about finding a large dish in hope that someone would come up after the talk and say to me, hey, look, I know someone who knows someone who might know something, and that would be that. As it turned out, four dish antennas were brought to my attention over the few years, a 14-metre dish at Mars Field at CSIRO was being freed up. We, the ASV, expressed an interest but lost it due to the consortium of universities. There was a 14-metre solid panel dish that had possibilities, but it was located 10 storeys up uh, on top of a Telstra building in Burwood Road, Hawthorne, still there today. Health and safety was of major consideration, as you can imagine. 
as it was for another 14-metre solid-dish antenna located at the old GTV9 studios in Bendigo Street, Richmond. It was about to be cut up for scrap, and alas, this would have been equally a bigger job, and not worth the risks in dismantling and shipping to Heathcote. But then, one of our early members of the radio astronomy section got in contact with me to see if I was interested in a 20-foot mesh dish antenna he had unassembled already for the taking that would fit easily on a tandem trailer. He says, I'm wanting to sell it, he said. So, <laughs> so cutting a long story short, Robert Arrowsmith, whom I met while working at PBN, hired a trailer and for one Sunday we travelled to Yay in country Victoria picked up the dish and delivered it to the Leon Mao Dark Sky site the same day, February 2011. Not long after, I put out a call for a mechanical engineer amongst the ASV membership who would be willing to help us do design and support structure that would allow the dish antenna to have complete manoeuvrability to all points of the sky from horizon to zenith. Peter McGowan, a mechanical engineer, stepped up for the challenge who just happened to be a member of the ASV and freely gave his time to designing our support for the dish. We owe a lot of thanks to Peter for his assistance to this project. Between Peter and former president of the ASV, Chris Rudge, people were approached that could machine, cut and weld all the necessary parts that went into the design. It is a monument to those who have spent many hours labouring over its construction it is a monument to all ASV membership whom which, without their funding, would have not been made possible. One such fellow I would like to commend is the late Jim Trainer. Without his very gracious donation many years ago, a lot of what has taken place at the Leon Maldark Sky site may not have been possible at this time. That's cool. Okay, thanks for that, Clint. Now... That brings us up to the installation of your switches and computer racks and connecting your dish, but it might be worth a little divergence here to tell our listeners about all the technologies you already had up on the Leon Mao radio observatory site that were collecting real-time data long before your new dish was installed. Yes, Brendan. In 2008, we obtained a 20-foot shipping container Months later, mains power was applied. This gave us a green light to install some equipment that we had already on hand. A Davis weather station, a Boltec lightning detector, and a seismometer by Amasis, and the Radio Jove receiver for detecting storms from Jupiter. These were some of the very first experiments to get up and running, and this was all well and good, but the information wasn't being seen by the membership or anyone else for that matter. We needed the internet. Within a few months, we had a satellite feed up and running. Robert created a, a website so we could upload the information so the world could see. A little while later, we added an Orion All-Sky low-res camera, which has worked perfectly well over these years. In fact, it's still working, but it is now being updated to a high-definition camera, which has been kindly donated to the radio astronomy section by Paul Litchen, who is the section director for astrophotography of the ASV. Many thanks to Paul. We also have a device that measures the quality of the sky directly above the site, a Unihedron Sky Quality Meter. And what I like about these uh, devices are the ease to install, connect to a router, indicate where the information is to be displayed, and away you go. In more recent times, a Whistler receiver, designed and built by ASV member Stephen Bentley, 
who has also been quite involved or equally involved with the DISH project, is specifically designed to detect distant lightning phenomenon at frequencies below 10 kilohertz. And that was installed, and the information on this is also available on the ASV website under the Radio Astronomy tab. There is also a VHF UHF spectrometer called an E Callisto, which is part of a worldwide network to monitor solar flare activity. A radiation detector and magnetometer are also part of the suite of experiments. I might also add that during this time we outfitted the container with a Faraday cage, an RF screened room, to try and isolate any possible interference from outside, and conversely any possible interference being generated from inside the lab that could be detected by our sensitive receivers like the receiver that's fitted at the focal point of the dish. Thanks Clint. Okay, so bring us up to speed with the latest work on the dish. When I describe the dish to people that are perhaps more familiar with optical telescopes, I would say the dish itself is like a mirror, a huge reflector collecting radio light and focusing to a point 3.6 metres above the dish. There we place the eyepiece, or in our case, the receiver or the front-end unit. Two of our very active members in our group, Phil Costigan and Mitch Rape, have spent many hours over these years on projects at LMRO. Designing a double waterproof housing to protect the sensitive electronics fitted within is one such project. Inside is the front end part of the spectrometer called the SpectraCyber, which we obtained from a company overseas called Radio Astronomy Supplies in the USA. It incorporates a fiber optic connection where the baseband of the hydrogen line receiver output is converted to an optical feed at 750 nanometers over 65 meters of single mode optical fiber, thereby reducing any losses that would be experienced using coaxial cable run. At the front of all this is a cylindrical aluminium feed horn fitted with one small monopole antenna no bigger than say six centimeters in length which detects the hydrogen line signal which is so prevalent in the universe. And what about a dish itself and the signals it can pull in? So in essence we start with the dish. Parabolic antenna eight and a half meters in diameter 28 feet weighing in almost a ton. Its surface is made of a mesh material with about a one centimeter perforation. This means the dish of course is frequency limited by virtue of the hole size. The higher the frequency we go the less that is reflected to the focal point the radio waves just pass through the mesh. This antenna will work quite well from 400 megahertz to as far as 10 gigahertz with diminished gain. There are many radio frequency allocations put aside for radio astronomy research, which are internationally protected. The hydrogen line at 1.420 gigahertz or 21 centimeter wavelength is just one of them. At 21 centimeters, the dish will exhibit a gain of around 40 dB. So without any electronic amplification, the antenna purely on its own will magnify these weak signals coming in from space 10,000 times to be amplified 9,000 times further by a low noise amplifier with a noise figure of around 0.29 dB at a gain of 37 dB connected directly to the small monopole antenna inside that cylindrical feed horn mentioned before. 
This then connects to an RF input of the front end receiver, which further amplifies the signal, mixes it with a local oscillator to produce an IF intermediate frequency of 70 MHz, which is 8 MHz wide. This IF frequency is then passed to an RF to optical converter where the laser light is modulated in intensity proportional to the radio frequency energy applied. 65 meters of single mode fiber optic cable running through an underground conduit reaches the back end receiver in the lab and uh, this has the optical to RF converter which detects the 70 MHz IF and therefore any hydrogen line information collected by the dish. This then passes to a square law detector which in turn is output as a serial data RS-232 protocol to then be converted to a USB connection for the old computer. The computer we have um, uses three programs that were basically supplied with the unit when it came. Spectrocyber, which was written in C. MySpec, which is written with something called PowerBasic Console. And a recently obtained newer program called RPI. This RPI program is a Linux-based version of the software already mentioned and, and used for the SpectraCyber spectrometer. The new software is now compatible with Linux running on Raspberry Pi microprocessors using Python 3 and SQLite. It uh, operates in a standard X-Window state-of-the-art environment with, uh, within a user-friendly interface. And uh, the SQLite server is used to keep records on the statistics of the data set scans, uh, while the actual data is stored in readable ASCII files to support user access. Put simply, all these great programs interrogate the signal to generate a trace across the screen, where Y-axis is measured in signal intensity and uh, the X-axis is centered on the hydrogen line rest frequency. The software functions to show any Doppler information in the spectra of the hydrogen line, thereby showing uh, what areas of hydrogen are moving away from the observer or conversely coming towards the observer. Therefore, radial velocities can be calculated in terms of kilometers per second. And uh, it is in fact this method that determined our galaxy had spiral arms and uh, gave astronomers the first concept of what our galaxy, the Milky Way, actually looks like. We hope to replicate this research and create our own radio maps of the galaxy. Fantastic setup. Okay, so let's look at timing and tracking now. What do you have there? My original concept to our engineers was that I would like the dish to be able to track any celestial object or source in real time, i.e. radio galaxies, the sun or even the moon, and to be able to tilt over to the horizon so maintenance could be achieved from a scaffold platform wheeled into place and raised directly up to 90 degrees or the zenith. Pointing accuracy of the drives are plus or minus 0.1 of a degree. We believe we achieve better due to the accuracy of the encoders built into the motor systems. When geared down, the aiming accuracy is in orders of magnitude better. But the pointing accuracy is not the issue, rather than the beam width of the antenna itself. At 1420 MHz, we are looking at the minus 3 dB beam width of 1.65 degrees on the sky, plus or minus 0.2 of a degree. So actually our pointing accuracy or capability is 10 times better than required. 
we met with SEW Euro to discuss motor and gearbox ratios and power demands. They went away and built us an azimuth motor with a large gearbox, which meshes to a pinion gear, which has also had to be designed for us, to the azimuth slewing bearing. The elevation motor, again made by SEW Euro, incorporates a helical gearbox that meshes with a heat-treated strengthened lead screw about 4 metres long, which is attached to a 50 millimetre thick steel plate that the dish is bolted to. Both motors are three-phase operation and are accordingly controlled by two independent SEW movie track controllers, which also serves as single-phase to three-phase converters. These are interfaced to a computer, which has a program written in Python that talks to the controllers. The DISH controller software in turn talks to the program called KSTARS, which is a desktop planetarium program, freely available and open source to enabling our program gurus the ability to cross-link from KSTARS to our DISH control program. So quite literally, we can place a cursor on the star map, click on it, and tell the dish where to move into this position or automatically start tracking the object, and it all works very well. Using VNC to remotely connect into the systems at the observatory via the satellite link, we can arrange for observations of the sky in the comfort of your lounge room. And of course the computer systems are all interfaced to a GPS time standard as well. Thanks Clint, a high degree of accuracy. Now that brings us to first light. When did that happen and what did you see? And it must have been pretty exciting. Yes, it was, Brendan, but there's a little story here. Not everything is as it seems. We had the hydrogen line receiver fitted about a week before the annual barbecue, which the ASV conducts just before Christmas at the Dark Sky site. In looking for a source of hydrogen, we quite literally randomly picked a source we had in the computer database called PKS1934-638. We turned the dish in that direction, and lo and behold, this beautiful peak in the noise floor appeared before our eyes. I was so pleased with that one first observation, and that the whole endeavour had been vindicated with this successful first signal test. The question was, of course, what was PKS1934-638? It turns out to be some remote extragalactic radio galaxy that is about, well, apparently about 2.2 giga light years away. Its radio emission is constant enough that radio astronomers can use it as a signal calibrating source, and we were receiving it. Well, as it turns out, what in fact we were seeing was foreground hydrogen from within our own galaxy and not PKS1934-638. In fact, any hydrogen signal from that radio galaxy is sufficiently redshifted that it would be detected around 1.2 gigahertz, so therefore outside the bandwidth of our spectrometer. What we learn from this is that almost everywhere you look in the universe, you'll detect hydrogen as it is the most abundant gas, some of it moving towards us, some of it moving away. But there are methods and techniques that the radio astronomer has at hand to detect and measure not only the spectrum of line radiation of hydrogen, but to look for radio galaxies that are broadband emitters. One needs to use a continuum method of detecting the thermal emission or synchrotron types of radiation. Both these techniques produce interestingly different results. So uh, 
yes, we, we had a successful test. We definitely did. And we did detect hydrogen. And that alone is a, a positive and rewarding result for all of us. I might also mention that Carl Jansky, who discovered radio waves coming from space in 1933, his philosophy of life was that of a true scientist. And that was perseverance in the accumulation of data, objectivity in analysis, modesty, credit to others for their contributions and willingness to leave the ultimate evaluation of one's work to the future. I think there's something in that for all of us. Fantastic. Now, I imagine there's been much discussion among you about some potential targets for your new dish. And by the way, does it have a nickname yet? What do you call it? And can you tell us about the projects that the ASV Radio Astronomy Group will be embarking on, please? We have talked about giving the name to the dish, but at this stage, it's just known as the Leon Mao Radio Telescope otherwise known as the dish. It might one day be given somebody's name, perhaps. But uh, as far as uh, what we plan to look at, well, there's lots of stuff we can do. Um, but we get good hydrogen line spectra from the small and large Magellanic clouds. But certainly we plan to detect other radio galaxies, quasars, their brighter sources, try to look for pulsars. Um, I hope to work with uh, Steve Only on that one at some point design and build receivers to detect other molecular lines like hydroxyl, formaldehyde and uh, methanol uh, are all possible experiments. Uh, we have the makings of, a, of a, an 8.4 gigahertz receiver to detect the telemetry signals from various NASA and ESA probes in space, which will be an interesting exercise. Thanks, Clint. Now, I imagine ASV group meetings will be virtual for quite some time now. Are you set up for remote observations and data transfers? You mentioned that earlier from your website for group members to download and analyse from the dish itself. Will work on and with the dish continue? Yes, you are right, Brendan. Due to the COVID-19, all ASV meetings are suspended. However, the conferencing program Zoom uh, is being used in place with great success. And uh, as far as the radio observatory goes, we use VNC, a virtual network computing program to access computer systems at the Leon Mao Radio Observatory. Uh, we have plans to make saved data available for analysis soon. We are still in the early days and uh, there is a lot of work to be conducted to bring the dish up to speed uh, with observations. Uh, one such activity is to calibrate the dish against known sources. Uh, so we can display information in terms of temperature in Kelvin and or in terms of Jansky. Jansky being a, a unit of spectral flux density, something in the order of 10 to the minus 26 watts per square meter per hertz, something like that. It's a very, very weak signal. And uh, of course, Carl Sagan once said that the total amount of energy ever received by all radio telescopes on the planet Earth is less than the energy of a single snowflake striking the ground and that radio astronomers are dealing with amounts of energy that are barely there at all. The ASV committed an extraordinary amount of funding for this project. It is in our best interests to be proactive with regular maintenance works to continuous observations and scheduling of observations by members wishing to scan the heavens. 
There may even be external interests from universities like Monash uh, or Swinburne. Uh, the, the door is wide open in that area. Thanks, Clint. That sounds great. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? It's a good question, Brendan. Uh, apart from doing radio astronomy, the Society has an amateur radio licence uh, with a call sign VK3EKH. This allows us to use the dish as a transmitting antenna. In this mode, we will conduct experiments uh, at transmitting a signal to the moon and hearing it come back. We can also use the moon as a passive reflector and establish contact with other like amateur radio stations on the other side of the Earth. It is also hoped to attempt to reflect a signal off Venus. And with the US planning on returning to the moon, the Lunar Gateway Space Station being planned for lunar orbit will no doubt have a ham radio station on board and uh, there are in fact several astronauts that are licensed radio amateurs already and it is hoped to be among the first to contact the astronauts on that gateway station uh, which should be uh, a, a bit of fun and yes uh, every friday night at 10 p.m i conduct a radio internet broadcast on behalf of the asv for about uh, it's an hour on ham radio frequencies 3.541 megahertz in the 80 meter amateur radio band uh, and uh, an audio and video stream and a chat window which can be found on the ASV website www.asv.org.au under the Radio Astronomy tab. The broadcast has been running since 1988 initially by Russell Ward, BK3DRW, for 20 years and then I took over about 10 years ago. It's, uh, it's been a bit of fun and gives us a chance to use the old ham radio gear. Signals are generally heard Australia-wide. Thanks, Clint. So everyone should tune in. Well, let's sign off. Well, thank you so very much, Clint Jeffrey, radio astronomy tech guru, on behalf of our listeners. It's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thanks. Thank you, Brendan. It's been truly fantastic. Excellent. Well, farewell for now. Congratulations on your work on the dish. And hopefully I'll get to meet you and Rob up on your site sometime. And looking forward to it. You'll hear another feature interview in a month's time when we're talking to astrophysicist Kat Ross. Till then, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. Radio Wave.